A content warning for our listeners. This episode contains a section in which we discuss the Nazi Party's response to the film we're discussing today, including several mentions of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic language used by members of the Nazi Party. Check our show notes for time signatures if you want to skip this section. Thank you. Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched All Quiet on the Western Front. A German youth eagerly enters World War I, but his enthusiasm wanes as he gets a first-hand view of the horror. Mm. Our oldest film to date. Okay, but by how much? Four years. Really? Three or four years. Invisible Man, I believe, came out in 1933, and this is 1930. This movie is so old that they had to make a silent version because there were theaters not wired for sound yet. Mm-hmm. That's how long ago this movie came from. Mm-hmm. Damn, what a haunting movie, though. I mean, there are moments where you're like, oh, I can tell this is from the 30s, but there are other moments where you're like, this is good. Like, the filmmaking is really well done. The 30s were a really interesting time for movies Mm -hmm. because you had a lot of directors who were really starting to understand what the medium was capable of, Mm -hmm. and they were willing to do some really wild stuff. Mm -hmm. And by about the 40s or the 50s, which is, you know, the golden age of Hollywood, Part of why those movies sort of tamped that down was because they were wildly too expensive to produce. Mm-hmm. this film being included. It's it's not a cheap movie at all. But I think there was this real interesting moment, especially in the 30s, the late 20s, the early 30s, where a whole bunch of directors really were like, how far can we push the limits of what these cameras can do? Oh, sure. <laughs> and what we can build on these sets. And I, I mean, bar none, you know, you can talk about some of the, the datedness or the the sort of distance you feel from the movie at times, but it's one of the more beautiful movies you'll ever see. Mm -hmm. It's really amazingly well filmed and it's beautiful on top of being harrowing. Mm -hmm. This movie pulls zero punches. There are war movies that come out today that are like considered uber violent that aren't as graphic as this. True. I mean, there's the now legendary shot of an explosion and then two hands ripped apart at the wrist hanging onto a barbed wire fence. Mm -hmm. That's horror movie shit. Yeah. And they put it in this movie and it's it's a little bit like the glory thing we talked about, but even more so of the point of this movie is to tell you how horrible this war was. Mm Mm-hmm. Because that is the story. It, it's a remarkable story to begin with. Even though it's, it's fiction, it's very real to what the experience of World War I was. Mm-hmm. And it gut punches you. Oh, sure. It, it never lets up. I saw this movie back in high school. I was in one of those super way too smarty pants classes in history one time. Mm-hmm. And... One of the interesting things was we spent a whole segment going through why what happened in World War I shaped the rest of modern history. Mm -hmm. 
in so many ways and not just the Nazis, which are going to make an appearance in this episode, mm-hmm. but also just all of it because World War I was a meat grinder. The entire war was fought over almost nothing in terms of territory, mm-hmm. and it murdered millions. Yeah. And almost all of them were kids. Mm-hmm. 17, 16 babies. Yep. Just machine gunned down, stabbed, dead. And when you understand the horror of that war, a whole lot of the crap coming out of it starts to make a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. And this film, and especially this novel and story, are so resonant, and they've continued to be resonant. It's been remade twice now. Mm-hmm. Once as a, a TV film in America in 1979, and just recently, a German-language version has come out on Netflix and in theaters. And uh, I'm excited to watch that at some point, because this still really holds up. Yeah. The budget for this film was $1,200,000. That equates to about $21 million in today's money. Hmm. But as you get far back like this, that inflation rate also doesn't always tell the tale. So I, I would be willing to say that this is comparable to what you would get for a big budget war movie now. That seems right. That, that seems right. It's a sizable budget. It made $3 million worldwide, which is right around $52 million. Mm-hmm. So despite it being so intense, so grisly, it was huge. And it was also huge globally because one of the interesting things about this movie mm-hmm. is that it is an American movie, but it is not a movie defined by its Americanism. Mm-hmm. It is a global story about the horror of war. The film actually began production just months after the 1929 stock market crash. Mm-hmm. So already the economy's gone. Sure. In a matter of weeks, it was one of the riskiest gambles Universal Pictures ever took on a movie, just by numbers alone. They committed a huge amount of money to this. And as I said, they they had a silent and sound version. If you go find, I believe, Blu-ray versions of the film, they actually have the silent version available to watch. Mm -hmm. But for a film from 1930, the sound is both stunning and also really intense. Yeah, it's very good. Those war scenes, you're like, fuck, I'm in the middle of this shit. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about our writing. We start with the German novelist Erich Maria Remarque. Mm-hmm. This was his first novel. He was a soldier during World War I, and the novel was written based on his experiences. Mm-hmm. A number of his novels and stories have been adapted into other things, including The Road Back, Three Comrades, So Ends Our Night, The Other Love, Arch of Triumph, The Iron Curtain, The Last Ten Days, A Time to Love and Die, and Bobby Deerfield. Then we get a whole slew of people, because again, going back to the 1930s, you had a team. There was no single writer. (laughs) We start with Maxwell Anderson as one of the people working on the adaptation. Uh, He was a pretty big playwright. Before this, he wrote Saturday's Children. After this, he wrote One Romantic Night, The Guardsman, Rain, Death Takes a Holiday, Mary of Scotland, The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, Knickerbocker Holiday, The Eve of St. Mark, Key Largo, Joan of Arc from 1948, A Christmas Carol from 1954, The Wrong Man, Vertigo, Ben-Hur, The Bad Seed, Anne of a Thousand Days, and Meet Joe Black. Mm. Although it came out in the 90s, well after he had died, it was based on his screenplay. Okay. Then we have, doing the adaptation, a gentleman named Del Andrews, who 
only worked in silent film up to the 30s, and then his only other big credit was a contributing writer to the 1933 version of Little Women. Mm. Writing the screenplay is George Abbott. Now, he's not really a movie guy, Mm -hmm. but he is a Broadway legend. He has so many credits on Broadway, he is known as Mr. Broadway. He wrote... The Boys from Syracuse, Pal Joey, On the Town, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, Wonderful Town, The Pajama Game, Damn Yankees, Fiorello, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, and Flora the Red Menace. Hmm. Think you might have heard of some of those. Yeah, just a few. <laughs> All right. And then there's a whole bunch of interesting other stuff here. Uh, C. Gardner Sullivan was the supervising story chief, so he gets a credit. He was actually a supervisor for United Artists, Universal, and MGM from 1925 to 1933. He Mm -hmm. worked with Cecil B. DeMille at Paramount from 1918 to 1919 and started off as a newspaper reporter for the New York Evening Journal. Okay. So he's an editor. All right. Walter Anthony, who did the titles for the silent version. After working on silent titles for a very long time, he actually wrote a ton of 1940s educational films. Interesting. So if you want to go watch some of those really old, badly dated 1940s science things, you can enjoy that. Okay. And finally, a gentleman named Lewis Milestone. Now, he's not a writer, and he's not credited, but he did contribute. However, he's going to be a little bit more important later in this episode. Okay. What do we think of the writing of this movie? It's very succinct. I don't think the movie lags as much as some of like other films that we've seen before so big props to that i can't say the dialogue's great but the story itself moves and it moves well it's always hard when you're watching a film from 1930 because the dialogue it's not always the case yeah 42nd street wasn't that way it wasn't but the invisible man would hit it way too hard on the nose sometimes Mm -hmm. and this does that too Visually, the film is incredible, and all of the visual storytelling is amazing. The dialogue, they're putting a hat on a hat sometimes. Mm -hmm. And again, some of that was, and this isn't even a slight to people at the time, audiences weren't the same type of moviegoers. They weren't as sophisticated, and you had to really grab their attention. So it, you you have some lines and, and exchanges that really punch you in the face with what the point is sometimes mm-hmm. but still it's done it's a little bit like glory again it's done with such earnestness that i don't mind it so much mm-hmm. especially because the visual storytelling is so good and they don't linger in those dialogue exchanges too much no they they do it and and it's a succession of these continuing vignettes and ups and downs I really appreciate that the movie also, like, there is no single rise and fall at any point. It, it's like a roller coaster. I mean, you go from really intense shell shock scene to them having some, some lunch and Paul becoming one of the guys to going back home and being horrified at the war, the jingoism, to going back and feeling comfortable. Like, there's all these twists and turns and ups and downs. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps it engaging because this movie could feel like it dragged on on and on and on because it has so many scenes. It really does. I didn't remember like how many different moments they're showing throughout the story. Yeah. 
And they only do each scene's probably about five to seven minutes. It's not like it's very long, but it, they keep going on. And you're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize they're telling that much story. But they don't let it push too long. Mm-hmm. And when they are pushing a scene long, it is almost always in a battle scene. When again, the point is, look at how terrible this is. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's odd. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But it still works in a very interesting way, whereas some movies would fall completely flat because they're just too dated. Remark had the title from German newspaper reports. Uh, he came up with it because uh, the newspapers would rave on and on about victory on the Eastern Front over in Russia. Mm-hmm. And then they would dismiss all of the horrible crap that was going on on the Western Front. The newspapers would report, quote, nothing new in the West, mm. which translates literally to Investing nix neues, that is the literal translation of the novel's title. Okay. Which again just shows like the, yeah, nothing new, nothing new, just another, you know, 10,000 kids died today. Yeah. Nothing new. Yeah. And Eric Maria Remark's middle name, one of his middle names, was Paul, which is why he gave it to his lead character. Mm-hmm. And that leads us into our history. So this one's a little bit hard because it's fiction. The, the story is completely fictional, but it's directly inspired by a firsthand account. Sure. Th- this book was one that I was supposed to have read in high school. I definitely did not. Yeah. I've always wanted to read it, especially after seeing this movie, though. Sure. And I think what's cool about this movie is it makes you want to be like, whoa, what mm-hmm. is this story? <laughs> it does a really good job of drawing you in to want to do that. When I give you the numbers of the war, though, I think that the central point will really come home here. Yeah. Just specifically the Western Front of the war, because there's all these other theaters and weird stuff going on. Uh, But the Western Front was opened by the German army by invading Luxembourg and Belgium and then advancing into small parts of France. Mm -hmm. The bloodiest battles of World War I were fought on the Western Front. That includes Verdun, where 700,000 men died, the Battle of the Somme, where over 1 million died, and Passchendaele, where 487,000 died. The Allied forces used 15,900 troops in the war, and the Central forces, which were Germany and Austria-Hungary, used 13,250,000. 7,500,000 Allied soldiers died, 5,500,000 central soldiers died. That's about half of each of the army's committed troops. Mm -hmm. It is the bloodiest war that has ever been fought. And it was fought over almost nothing. After the initial invasion by the German army, these battles were fought for essentially no territory. The Mm -hmm. furthest the German army ever made it in 1914 was a 60-mile advance And that was only after they signed a peace treaty with Russia and Romania in 1918. As we see in the movie, these battles were fought over inches. On a good day, you got feet of land. Why so dumb? And you lost 20,000 men. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of technological reasons and different stuff. And and it is a fascinating war to study because it was a pivotal moment in history. Mm -hmm. Because it was the first time that antiquated ideas of warfare met modern technology. Mm -hmm. But also, when we talk about how war is a murder machine, the Western Front of World War I is the exact example that we use and why it's really bad. (laughs) 
Hmm. War is just bad. And this movie hammers that home so well. The details are incredibly accurate. Remark was writing from both the blind fever and pitch for war in Germany, the nationalism going on. It's actually softer than some of the really bad stuff that we show. I've I've viewed sometimes it's interesting that we we show the shells and and what those what that did mentally to the men there. Of course, at then it was called shell shock. Now we know it's it's more akin to PTSD. There's film of soldiers who have almost muscular symptoms. Mm-hmm. And they think it was caused not just by the the stress, but by almost concussion-like symptoms and CTE-like symptoms from the shells rocking them so mm-hmm. hard constantly. It was it, it was gruesome. <laughs> that being said, what's even more fascinating is the danger this novel posed to the powers that be. Mm-hmm. The complete text of All Quiet on the Western Front was not available in America until 1975. Mm-hmm. The American Legion argued against the film because it treated German soldiers sympathetically. Mm. It was banned in New Zealand for a month for being anti-war. And, this is an American film, the U.S. Army refused to offer any cooperation in the making of the film. Mm-hmm. But most of all, the Nazis hated this movie. Is there a movie they liked? Nazis loved Hollywood movies. Nah. Goebbels built his entire propaganda empire based off of Hollywood cinema. Fair. Yeah. But uh, this one, because it portrayed the horror of war, and because the Nazis were a lot of World War I soldiers who were pissed about how the war ended, mm-hmm. they fought back in this movie. On December 5th, the film premiered in Berlin's Mozart Hall. Goebbels led 150 Nazi brown shirts into the theater, shouted anti-Semitic venom, and, quote, Judenfilm at the screen. They then tossed stink bombs, threw sneezing powder into the air, and released white mice into the theater. It was one of their earliest acts of terrorism. Wow. To the Nazis, it represented Germany's cowardice, its failure to fully fight through the end of the war and win. Mm-hmm. Goebbels himself had been unable to fight in World War I for health reasons, so this was a personal vendetta mm-hmm. for him. And in his diary, Goebbels wrote, quote, Within 10 minutes, the cinema was a madhouse. The police are powerless. The embittered masses are violently against the Jews. More riots would break out over the film at Goebbels' leadership. They would wield torches and shout down screenings. And in Vienna, 1,500 police had to withstand a mob of several thousand Nazis attempting to disrupt a showing at the Apollo Theater. This film was a flashpoint in the early Nazi party. Mm. The riots actually prompted Universal's chief, Carl Lamley, to agree to significant cuts to allow the film to be re-released in Germany, which was part of Hollywood's constant appeasement of Hitler up until America's declaration of war in 1941. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the film was banned by Nazis and would not receive screenings in Germany until 1956. And this invasion of the theater, it was one of the first times they invaded public spaces to try to get their message across. His book was made illegal. It was subject to book burnings and protests. There's pictures of them specifically burning this book. Remark actually became an enemy of the Nazi regime. Wow. Nazi Minister of the Interior Wilhelm Frick declared it bad because it portrayed Germans as cowards instead of, you know, traumatized children. Yeah. However, 
It did play to packed houses in Switzerland, France, and the Netherlands, and those countries set up special trains and transport to allow Germans to get out of their country to see the film. Mm-hmm. The story itself is a huge cultural touchstone, especially sure. in Europe. And the movie only furthered that. Mm. It's wild. <laughs> like, even if this movie was, I don't know, like, just bleh and mediocre, it would still be incredibly important because of what it was doing. What makes it amazing is that it's also a really fucking good movie. Mm. I think that's the coolest part. And I think a big part of that is our director. So let's talk about him. Okay. Lewis Milestone. Okay. Before this, he directed Seven Sinners, Two Arabian Nights, The Garden of Eden, Betrayal, and New York Nights. After this, he directed The Front Page, Anything Goes, Of Mice and Men, Edge of Darkness, The North Star, Arch of Triumph, Halls of Montezuma, Les Miserables from 1952, and They Who Dare. This would be the first film he made in sound. Wow. What do we think of Lewis Milestone's directing of this film? It did a great job. I mean, some of those shots are insane. Between all of the wild crane shots over the battlefields Mm -hmm. and in the town places. But to me, I think what stood out even more, because at the time, when I saw this originally, I hadn't seen a movie. I, I hadn't even really watched like black and white movies. Mm-hmm. Right, like I that just wasn't what I watched, and I remember watching this and being like, "They could do this in 1930," because that's that's the impression you first get from it. Whoa, you could actually like do these shots. Some of this stuff is more inventive than what directors do now. And then I think to what what got me even more this time was shots like Paul being bunkered down, laying under a picture frame, looking up, mm-hmm. and you're like. Holy fucking shit, man. (laughs) Like, it's a pure artistic moment, and it's done completely within context. Mm -hmm. But it's also just a beautiful shot. There's just, there's so many memorable visual moments, and then just all of the coordination. Because the other thing you have to remember with all of this is every fucking thing was practical. Mm. Every single bit of this was done with real people and real effects. Nothing. had any technological advance other than maybe some clever editing. And I got to tell you, even in those battle scenes, like you can kind of notice that there's an explosion, there's a little bit of smoke, and then there's a little cut there before we see two hands hanging. But by that point, you're fully engrossed in the film. You're not even worried about that. Mm -hmm. I don't think the movie's perfect, but I think his directing is incredible. Mm -hmm. It's one of the biggest reasons the movie has continued to be watchable and interesting and hold up as a piece of cinema Mm -hmm. because the visual style and care and thought that he put into it i mean just that just that last moment alone with the hand reaching for the butterfly and then having to pull back yeah like you could watch the whole movie and remember nothing and you'd still be left with that image for the rest of the day probably oh sure and there's so many moments like that from the movie. <laughs> I mean, even just the very beginning is like, damn, they really did this. So they, I mean, they, I mean, they did an amazing job. I think the only thing that throws me off a little bit is that there's definitely shooting night or day, which can, doesn't always look bad, but sometimes it's just really off-putting. 
Yeah, the, and this one's a little bit. This one's a little bit sneakier about it because of the black and white. Mm-hmm. They do a decent job of really getting the the sky pitch black, so at least you've got that. Mm-hmm. One of the things I saw was like all of this was done on sound stages. Wow. They had a little Europe at at Universal. They had all these different set builders and and stuff. None of this was on any location. This was just all done at Universal. Mm-hmm. And just like again. My God, you can do that. <laughs> We've talked about it with a few movies this year that came out this year. And it's just like movies like this are why you make movies mm-hmm. because you can do shit like this. You're allowed to go wild. Yeah. And the one thing I say to his credit, too, is it's not just that he goes wild for the sake of going wild. He mm-hmm. also does it to give you the scope of how big this is. Yeah. That's why he's doing it. If it was a small, intimate movie in a foxhole, he would keep it small and intimate. But that's not the point. Yeah, it's oof, it's incredible directing. Milestone deliberately made the film without music to not distract from the seriousness of the film. Mm-hmm. However, some theaters not used to that that silence added their own music <laughs> because, again, they were used to having a score. Sure. And that, uh, that did not make Lewis Milestone very happy. Milestone cast almost 2,000 extras for the film, many of them Germans, hmm. and a good chunk of those Germans who had served in the war, and they had all moved to the U.S. following the economic disaster. Mm-hmm. Milestone had initially been looking for former vets just to source authentic uniforms and equipment, so he'd just reach out to the local German communities, but he found so many people in the U.S. that he decided, well, screw it, let's cast them. Mm-hmm. And he actually hired them to be officers and drill the cast in order to perform the same functions as the German military men. Mm-hmm. In the scene where the soldiers are laying communications wire in the forward trenches, they were led by a former German soldier who had that job in World War One. Wow. The set itself in the trenches was so realistic that the chief sanitary inspector of Orange County, California, halted production to make sure the conditions of the trenches were fit for safety. Hmm. The sweeping tracking shots of the battlefield were taken by using a special camera crane built for the 1929 film Broadway. The crane required its own concrete ramp that had to be installed several months before filming started. Okay. (laughs) fucking hollywood man Mm -hmm. that crane allowed all of those sweeping shots that we see though that's amazing the shots that get me this so much from the battlefield scenes are the ones where you have the men approaching and then you have the machine guns Mm -hmm. and you pan one side with the soldiers and then you pan the same side with the machine guns and just going down in a row and then you reverse the sides and do it again yeah and you're like God almighty. And it can feel like overkill, but it's like, but that's what it was. Mm-hmm. The shot of a soldier grabbing a strand of barbed wire and being blown up, leaving only the hands, was an actual event described by one of the former German soldiers that was an extra. He mm-hmm. saw it happen during a French attack on his position. Okay. So just in case you thought any of this was more real than life. Nope. That's nuts. And the final shot with the hand reaching for the butterfly, was filmed while they were editing the movie. Mm -hmm. Milestone came up with the idea, and then all the actors had completed. They wrapped. They were done. 
So Milestone used his own hand for that shot. Iconic. Amazing. Crazy. Let's talk about our cast. Cast. Now we have two main actors that I'm going to talk about here because they kind of get the lion's share of the movie, Mm -hmm. even though this is really one star and a whole bunch of ensemble. Okay. We're going to start with Lou Ayers playing Paul. This is his breakout role. Very young actor at the time. Makes sense. We're casting a lot of young guys to play young 18-year-olds. After this, he was in East is West, Heaven on Earth, State Fair, Murder with Pictures, Holiday, Young Dr. Kildare, which was this character, Dr. Kildare, that he played for like nine more movies. So he had a big series. Mm -hmm. Johnny Belinda, Advise and Consent, The Carpetbaggers, The Biscuit Eater, The Man, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, Damien, Omen 2, and Battlestar Galactica, the original TV movie. Mm -hmm. What do we think of Lou Ayers in this movie? I mean, he's good. I feel like this is just kind of one of those movies where they all kind of become faceless in a way because everyone in this movie looks the same. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm really having a hard time of like picking out something extra or special that they did. They certainly did a good job. Like I, nobody was like a weak link in terms of cast here for me, but I, yeah, I think we do suffer a little bit from everybody looks the same in this film. Yeah. And that's by design. I mean, the only thing with Paul is we're seeing it from his perspective. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's the whole thing. It's his movie. He's the one going back and forth. And we're, mm-hmm. we're seeing it from his perspective with all the other characters. All of the acting, again, it's 1930. So the acting is so different. It's very stagey. Maybe a little. Not in a bad way at all. It, it's actually even more. We talked about this when we talked about Sunset Boulevard, where Gloria Swanson, it was like, you know, she's she's doing a, an amazing job, but it's her face that's doing so much more because she's so used to acting with her face. Yes. And you're seeing that a lot with these guys. Mm -hmm. They're all so much more used to acting without sound. It's not so much that it's bad. It's just that when the beats hit, when the moments hit, they hit hard. Mm -hmm. When Paul's in that trench with the dying Frenchman, ugh, and it's great acting because he's losing his shit. I'll write to your wife. I'll write to her. I promise she'll not want for anything. And I'll help her and your parents too. Only forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. But when he's just sort of sitting there talking to someone else, you're seeing two people in front of a camera and it's like a stage show except it's all flat on a screen. Mm Mm-hmm. That's, I think, a byproduct of the era. Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't blame it on him. I think I just think what's cool is when the time calls to really do capital A acting, Mm -hmm. he does it. And it's it it just adds to the moment. And I think everybody does that in a lot of ways, especially all the guys. Mm -hmm. We talk about it when when they all stand up and say, I'll volunteer. It's creepy as fuck. Yeah. But then again, that's the idea. It shouldn't feel rational. It, it can be a little hammy. It can be a little stagey for sure. Mm-hmm. I do think he does a really good job. At least in part because of this role, Ayers became a conscientious objector and refused to serve in World War II. Mm-hmm. Rightfully fucking so. Hmm. I cannot blame this guy for taking that stance after being in this film. That's fair. Now, World War II, maybe the 
the single best example of a time when fighting in a war is probably for the better good. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. But then again, like acting that role, I have to imagine would drastically affect your view on war. Mm -hmm. And he put his money where his mouth is. His films were banned from over 100 theaters in Chicago alone. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they were banned in many more places because he refused to serve. Yeah. He had put his foot down and was just like, no, I've seen what this does to men. I won't. I won't go along with it. Yeah. Who could have been better? Mm -hmm. Douglas Fairbanks Jr., a Hollywood legend who was already a movie star at the time. And the author himself, Eric Maria Remark, Hmm. which would have been interesting, but also I think he would have been a little old. I don't know. I like the idea of let's have a young guy do this. Yeah. Seems like a good idea. Yes. I, I, I think that makes sense. The other main actor I want to point out because he has a big supporting part in this film is Lewis Wolheim playing Cat, the hmm. in the trenches officer dude. Okay. Now, Wolheim was not a film actor. He got his start on stage when Lionel Barrymore saw him. Wolheim had been playing football with other students at Cornell and his nose was fractured along with having some scarring on his face. Mm -hmm. Lionel Barrymore told him, well, with that face, you could make a fortune in the theater. Mm -hmm. And he did. <laughs> he had a very long run in the theater. He got a ton of notoriety uh, by being one of the stars of Eugene O'Neill's The Hairy Ape. Mm -hmm. This was his first big film role and he was set to move into more but six days into rehearsal for Lewis Milestone's next film, The Front Page, he died of stomach cancer. Wow. What do you think of Wolheim in this movie? He He's pretty haunting. He's haunting and yet also like the most chill guy mm -hmm. of anybody we deal with. Sure. The hauntingness, I think, too, comes from the fact that he's just so nonchalant because he's seen too fucking much. Mm -hmm. He's like the first ever version of the grizzled vet. That we get in film yeah he really is he's the prototype for all of those dudes he's funny he's charming he's both our comic relief and a a, a real poignant thing for us mm -hmm. his death is so sad yeah that's i think that's where i get the haunting from because it's just like man you care about paul because paul's been your de facto tour guide through all of this sure but then we meet this guy and you're just like ugh, it like it just it hurts and they even put it in the movie. It's like, the only way Kat's getting out of this is if the war ends. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the only time he's allowed to die. And not even that. The war won't even spare the one solid good dude who understands that this war is not about any of these guys, but it's the job they're now having to do. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you how it should all be done. Whenever there's a big war coming on, you should rope off a big field and sell and, tickets. Yeah. And and on the big day, you should take all the kings and their cabinets and their generals, put them in the center dressed in their underpants and let them fight it out with clubs. The best country wins. He's the one just rock solid dude and the war won't even spare him. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta tell y'all, this is a bleak movie. <laughs> this is this is not an easy watch. It is quintessential, but woof, it's dark stuff. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about a few arpons. Random people of note: Ben Alexander playing Kemrick, one of the other kids, 
Uh, he started off as a child actor in 1915, working with Cecil B. DeMille and D.W. Griffith, and then Ooh. took on a lot of juvenile roles like this. By the mid-30s, he had moved on to radio announcing until 1951, when a gentleman named Jack Webb chose him to play Frank Smith opposite Webb's Joe Friday for Dragnet. Mm. Beryl Mercer playing Paul's mother. Uh, she was a stature of film who played a mother figure opposite James Cagney, Gary Cooper, Leslie Howard, and Spencer Tracy in her career. Mm -hmm. So she was literally just movie mom. Okay. She also appeared in the Shirley Temple film The Little Princess and 1939's The Hound of the Baskervilles with Basil Rathbone playing Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. Who could have been better? Big-time comedian at the time, Zazu Pitts, was supposed to play Frau Boimer. She was in Eric von Stroheim's Greed, shout out to Sunset Boulevard. Mm -hmm. However, test audiences only knew her as a comedic actress, and so as soon as she came on screen, they started laughing. Mm -hmm. So they had to cut her and recast. Okay. But she went right back into comedy, and she kept on doing great for herself. Vince Barnett playing an assistant cook. Uh, I think he's the big guy at the at the pot who's arguing with everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a vaudeville actor who was second only to Groucho Marx in his insults and practical jokes. Okay. Victims of his pranks include Winston Churchill, Charles Lindbergh, Henry Ford, and polar explorer Roald Amundsen. Okay. Clark Gable nearly punched him out at a party, and he greeted Greta Garbo one time with, Good morning, Miss Hepburn. <laughs> he even told Jack L. Warner, posing himself as a foreign producer, to learn the basics of making movies. He was the punked of the 1930s. That's nuts. We have Raymond Griffith playing Gerard Duval, the Frenchman who dies in the trench with Paul. After a childhood bout of respiratory diphtheria, his vocal cords got permanently damaged, and while on stage performing a role, he had to let out a scream and lost his voice completely. Hmm. Quote, the audience heard a piercing shriek from the boy as he cringed before the whip. That was all. The terror on the boy's face was the terror of realism. He was stricken. He could not speak a line after that scream. His recovery was so gradual that he could not speak above a whisper for years, unquote. Nevertheless, he worked really well in silent film. He had a hybrid comedic dramatic acting style that got him a lot of recognition. He could kind of do both in the same movie. Mm -hmm. However, because of the switch to sound, this would be one of his final roles. Mm, yeah. But what a role to go out on. Oh, sure. Frederick Koner, playing a minor role in the film, he is the author of the book Gidget, based on stories his daughter Kathy told him after coming home from Malibu Beach. Mm -hmm. Tom London, playing a first medic orderly, as of 2001, he was credited as appearing in the most films in the history of film. He was in almost 2,000 movies, with his first being in 1903, a movie everyone knows the Great Train Robbery. Mm. Robert Parrish playing a schoolboy. He was a child actor in the 1930s who went on to become an editor and director, including the Peter Sellers and Orson Welles sequence of Casino Royale from 1967. Mm. Sig Ruman playing Mr. Meyer. He was Schultz in Stalag 17. Oh, okay. Wow. And finally, Fred Zinnemann playing a German soldier and French ambulance driver. We just talked about him as the director of A Man for All Seasons. 
Wow. Okay. So this was like a first time step out into Hollywood for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it's 1930. Yeah. All right. That leads us to awards. Awards? This film was nominated for four Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Writing, which it lost. Mm -hmm. It was nominated for Best Cinematography, which it lost. It was nominated for Best Director, and it won. And I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah. And it was nominated for Best Picture, and won. It was also the first ever Best Director and Best Picture Oscar winner, though, of course, the Oscars had been around for basically two minutes at this point. So. Sure. But it's, it's one of the earliest Best Pictures you have to see movies. Mm-hmm. And that leads us into trivia. Trivia. With all of the loss and limbs and gory deaths all shown very graphically on screen, this was quite possibly the most violent American film to that point. And the only way they got away with this was the fact that the production code did not start being strictly enforced until 1934. So they they sneaked this in as a pre-code film. Okay. Universal Pictures also felt so strongly about the subject matter that it deserved to be seen in full. No edit. Mm -hmm. There is a strong suggestion that Paul and his friends, when they swim over to the French girls, have sex with them. They come out of Mm -hmm. the bedrooms. They're wrapped up after they go in. There's also brief nudity. We see their butts while they're swimming. There's blasphemy all over. All of these things would never have made it past the code by 1935. Interesting. And subsequently, whenever it got re-released later on, there was extensive censorship of the film. Interesting. But luckily, this is one that's been preserved very well over time. So we still have the full version that we can watch now. Okay. Fred Zinneman, who we mentioned having a role, he had his first job in Hollywood for this film. Mm. He also got fired for being impudent on set. Okay. I don't want to know what that means. No. Impudence in 1930? I don't know. Uh, Director George Cukor, who directed Gaslight, My Fair Lady, and The Philadelphia Story, got his start as a dialogue coach on this film. Mm-hmm. He worked with many of the actors to tone down any of their regional accents to allow more people to relate to the characters. Mm-hmm. One of the comedic guys, the the absolute horn dog older guy, I don't remember his name. He was a Western actor mm-hmm. and a comedic guy too, but a Western actor. I'm sure he had more of a Southern Western drawl, and I'm sure they had to work to tone that back. Okay, but like they worked on the Mid Atlantic stuff. They wanted them to just be plain, ordinary American accents so that everybody would be seen in the same way. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that they also don't try to push any of the like German mannerisms on them in any way. Mm-hmm. This is a universal story. All you have to do is just show them being bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and then getting wrecked by the war. You don't have to make them fake German. <laughs> mm. Finally, the first line of writing in Greek on the schoolroom blackboard at the beginning of the film is from Homer's Odyssey. Quote, tell me, O muse, of that ingenious hero who traveled far and wide. The second line comes from Ovid. Quote, resist the first elements of passion. It's too late when you resort to medicine. At the end of the scene, another line appears that we see, and it says, quote, Whatever you do, do it wisely and keep in mind your purpose, unquote. Mm-hmm. And that leads us to ratings. Rating, okay. For each film, we have a specific rating system. 
for this one, it's either going to be butterflies or it's going to be helmets. What do you think? <gasps> Let's go with helmets. Putting it up there. Waiting to see if you're you're still under fire in the trench. This is my movie. I'll go first. Okay. I'm going to go four and a half. Okay. It's just off perfect for me. Mm. It's so visually interesting and stunning and haunting. Mm-hmm. There's just a few elements. It, it really comes down to it's just a little bit dated. Mm-hmm. But for a movie from 1930 to still have that level of impact, that level of power, and to be so unique and powerful that you can still remake it, mm-hmm. it's a testament to the original story for sure. Okay. But it's also a testament to just how well made the movie is. And so not only can you appreciate it from, you know, for myself being someone who's very anti-war, Mm-hmm. who I, I don't like it, don't want it, think it's bad. This movie speaks to me on that level a lot. But I also, just as somebody who loves movies, appreciate just what a fucking great movie it is. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a four and a half for me. Okay. I was thinking four, but mostly for the, the same reasons. I mean, it's visually amazing, um, especially when you... It, it's visually amazing even by today's standards. Yeah. That they're able to accomplish what they did. It's just so cool. I think the reason I'm giving I'm knocking it down is because the story doesn't focus enough for it to be like for it to be like overwhelmingly compelling mm. and that the dialogue just isn't there. And I know like dialogue is new <laughs> at this time. <laughs> like brand it, new. <laughs> and it's brand new, which is fair and valid, but I feel like I don't know. I was like, you know, I, I would be interesting to have watched this film with just the uh, score, the silent score. Mm-hmm. I think that would be an interesting experience. But it's 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 a four for me. And we'll, at some point, we'll have to sit down and, and watch the new version. I think the narrative will probably be a little bit stronger. And I think it'll also be very interesting to watch with the German. That'll be interesting. I look I look forward to that, actually. I'm excited about the one. It's already got um, early buzz also for, I know it's being submitted as a best foreign language mm-hmm. Oscar contender. So it should be really interesting. But now we have to switch to another part of World War One. Okay. For, for the longest movie we will ever watch for this show. Okay. I think I've said multiple times that I didn't want to bother showing you this movie because I knew it was good, but I knew it was long. Okay. And now we're here, Diana, and we have to watch the greatest historical epic ever made. Oh, so we were finally going to watch uh, Gone with the Wind? I've seen that. No, we're watching the movie that's a minute longer. We're watching 1962's Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, okay. Oh, man. Oh, man. This was a- another one of those movies I watched in the I have to watch the important movies days. It's long. It's mm. gorgeous. And I don't remember a whole lot of it. But I remember really liking it. Okay. Yeah, I've 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 never watched Lawrence of Arabia. I never had a, a reason to. Oh, also the 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 racism in the casting. The racism in the mm. casting. But hey, it's Hollywood. <laughs> okay. All right. Are you ready? Are you ready for four hours of movie, Diana? Gotta get the coffee for the day. Whew. All right. Well, until next time. Have a good movie.
Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you.